So today's daf is Mem Zayin in Masechet Eruvin. We are starting on Mem Vav Amud Bet, about 17 lines from the bottom. We're talking about really, and the topic mostly, of the next uh, at least um, Amud and a half or so, or so is going to be about this Klalea uh, Psak, the, uh, the rules of making rulings. In other words, when, you, when different rabbis have machloket with one another, according to whom do we rule halachat lema'aseh, practically speaking. So we had different rules about Rabbi Yehuda versus uh, Rabbi Shimon. What about Rabbi Meir versus Rabbi Yehuda? All of these different rules that are brought down in the top of this Amud that we saw yesterday. And then Rav Mishar Shia came along and said, no, let neu lahane I don't believe in any of these rules. You have to look at every machloket independently. You can't just have a rule that, oh, Talacha always follows Rabbi Yossi against his colleagues, but it only Rabbi Akiva only against one. I mean, all of these rules uh, uh, imply that there's like a one-size-fits-all answer and you can just plug it in and you don't need to look at the specific issues that are at play. Rav Mishar Shia said, no, 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 you have to look at every machloket in, in and of itself. These rules are made up. So, Rav Mishar that's where we left off. Where did Rav Mishar Shia get this idea that these rules don't exist? There's no such rule as halachas uh, like Rabbi Yehuda against Rabbi Shimon, let's say, for example. So, Ile Mamehaditnan Rabbi Shimon Omer Lema'adabardomeh this was actually the previous Mishnah. You might say that it's from the previous Mishnah that he learned it because there we talked about two, basically you have three people that are sitting um, within the techum of one another. So the guy in the middle shares space with the guy on the left and the guy on the right, but the guy on the left doesn't share any space with the guy all the way to the right. In other words, you have three guys lined up and the, 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 there are two more amot, let's say, uh, to his side, which include the person next to him, but don't include the person after that. And the person on the outer edge, so that person has two amot next to him that include the guy in the middle, but don't extend all the way to the guy who's to the far side. So basically the guy in the middle, his techum overlaps with the guy in the right and the guy in the left. But the guy in the right and the guy in the left don't overlap with one another. So the thing is that the guy in the middle could share food, let's say, or whatever, with the guy in his right and the guy in his left because he's within their space, but the guy on the right and the guy on the left can't share with each other. And, and Rabbi Shimon had said, what is this similar to? It's similar if you have three chatzerot that are open to one another and they're open to the Rashut Rabbi. So if the two outer ones make an eruv with the center one, so the center one can interact with the outer one, Right, the one on the left and the one on the right. But since the one on the outside didn't have any relationship with one another, in other words, they made the one on the right made an, a, a, a shitufei mavuot, let's say, or with the one in the middle, and the one on the and the one on the other side made something with the one in the middle, but didn't include the one on the far side. So the the ones on the far ends cannot traverse, cannot bring things from one to the other because they are, they've excluded one another. They only have a relationship with the one in the middle. The one in the middle has all the freedom in the world to go back and forth between all three of the spaces. But the ones on the outer sides can only interact with one in the middle. So he said, that's, that's what's similar here. In other words, the same concept that pertains to three people who are sitting next to, next to each other and the limits of space make it that the guy in the middle 
can pass things back and forth between himself and the guy on his right and the guy on his left, even though the guy on the right and the guy on the left can't interact with each other. The same could be true with courtyards, that a courtyard in the middle can be okay to carry from that courtyard to the courtyard on the right, and okay to carry from the, that courtyard to the courtyard on the left, but the people living in the courtyard on the right and the courtyard on the left cannot go carry things back and forth between their courtyards because they don't have a relationship. They only have a relationship with the one in the middle. Okay, That's, that was Rabbi Shimon's halachan. We said that halachan was Rabbi Shimon. So it says, Uman paliga Rabbi Yehudan. Who's the one who argues with him? Rabbi Yehuda. V'hamrat Rabbi Yehuda v'Rabbi Shimon halachak Rabbi Yehuda. Ela lav shema letneu. So this proves Rav Mishashia's rule. Because Rav Mishashia said that there is no rule. Right? In other words, you, you told me that anytime there's a machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon, we should be following Rabbi Yehuda. And Rabbi Yehuda would not subscribe to this idea that the people on the outside and the, people, and the person in the middle, right, is the, uh, uh, you know, are, that this halakha pertains. Right? Because since the, uh, because uh, Rashi says here that... Um, he says, even though it doesn't clearly say that it's Rabbi Yehuda, the assumption is always that it's Rabbi Yehuda that's arguing with, um, that's arguing with, uh, with Rabbi Shimon. So that's the assumption. But the point is that we said there, the halakha is Rabbi Shimon, even though the person arguing with him was Rabbi Yehuda. So doesn't that prove that there is no such rule that whenever Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon argue, the halakha is Rabbi Yehuda, because obviously we're following Rabbi Shimon. So, so Rav Meshach says, see, I told you there's no such rule that you follow Rabbi Yehuda. But the answer, Umay Kushya, the Gemara says, what's the difficulty? Maybe where it's stated, it's stated. Where it isn't stated, it isn't stated. In other words, here you had to tell me that because maybe like we say, the exception proves the rule. In other words, you're telling me an exception because every other case it follows Rabbi Yehuda. Maybe there's another example Rav Meshashia will point to where these rules don't hold. If you had a city of an individual, now the way that Rashi interprets city of an individual was, is a small city that didn't have a lot of traffic, okay? And it becomes a metropolis, it becomes a huge center of traffic. So you can include the entire thing in an Eruv. Basically, there's halacha we're going to learn later that if there's a very large area, even though that very, very large, heavily trafficked area is enclosed, making an Eruv with, and really it's talking about shitufim of od, right? It's talking about, you know, making that whole place considered one place and integrating it with other areas is not allowed because it looks too much like a Rashut Rabim. Right? If you make an Eruv in... What? It, people get confused. They'll say, if this place, which is basically a metropolis, just because it has walls around it, they're not going to notice that. They're going to say, if you can make an Eruv here and everybody carries in here and they carry over to the Mavoy. And they ca- so, so, uh, so therefore they made a rule that a, such a heavily trafficked area, you have to leave some, some part of that area not included in the Eruv. Again, we're not talking about an Eruv, a string going around the uh, room. We're talking about the Eruv that they made, Eruv Echatzerot, where they brought bread and they said, we're all part of one community and we're all, uh, we're all united in using this chatzera as one family. Okay? You have to make one section that isn't included. Why? Because otherwise you're going to allow free reign for people to carry throughout this entire area and they'll confuse it with the Rashut Rabim because it's so heavily trafficked. It would be like if you put walls around uh, Manhattan, nobody's going to feel like it's an enclosed place because it's just a, you know, nobody will notice that there, there are walls around it. So that was the, so that's, but if it was Irshad Yachid, if it was originally a small area and it became big, you can still make an Eruv because people were used to it being small and already established. But, Shal Rabim Ben Asit Yachid, if a place 
was once a bustling metropolis and became a ghost town, okay? So, en ma'arvinet kula. You cannot include all of it. Ela imken Unless you have one section outside of the Eruv, it's not included. That's the size of Ir which people say means the name of a city called Chadasha, it was called the new city. But either way, the idea is that you have to make at least one section, distinct section that's not included. Okay? And that has at least 50 inhabitants. In other words, there have to be 50 inhabitants not included. That's not such a large amount if you're talking about a huge area of tons of people. So... Yeah, one, one street has to be excluded. Even if you include, exclude from the Eruv three chatserot of two houses each, meaning a very small amount. So you could actually have just, uh, uh, you know, six families, three, three, three chatserot, three courtyards with two houses each. That could be excluded, and that's enough to show that this entire area is not included in the Eruv. And therefore, since people know that, um, uh, that, uh, that the entire area is not included. They'll recognize that it's, that it's, there's a special consideration here that are, there's a, that we're trying to remind ourselves that Rishut Arabim, you're not allowed to carry. And, um, we'll learn later in the, uh, in the upcoming, uh, when, when this is actually discussed in the Gemara about, about the, the, the technical rules here. But basically, the, the concept is that you that you have to have something excluded so that people don't get confused. Okay, from the Shitufei Mavu'ot, from the Eruvei Chatzorot. We'll, we'll see. But the, um, but in, in either case, you have a machalka between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. Now, and there again, Rav Chamabar Guriyas and Rav that Allah follows Rabbi, uh, follows Rabbi Shimon. So you see that we're not following Rabbi Yehuda. Uman paligale Rabbi Yehuda, and clearly Rabbi Yehuda is the one who argues with him. And you told me that whenever we have a machloket between the two, the halacha should follow Rabbi Yehuda, and it doesn't. So that shows that Rav Mishashi is right. That this whole concern, this whole uh, set of rules that you're giving is not legitimate. So again, the Gemara will answer, We'll use the same answer we used before. Where it's stated, it's stated. Where, right, exactly. Where it's, it's, an, it's an exception. What about a case like this? A person lives in a certain chatzer, he lives in a courtyard, and they make an Eruvei Chatzerot every week. Whether he's a non-Jew or a Jew, and when it's a Jew, he has to participate in the Eruvei Chatzerot. When it's a non-Jew, he has to rent out his space to the Jews to, uh, to be able to uh, uh, allow them to make Eruvei Chatzerot. That's, that's the rule. We'll learn more about it in upcoming Prakim. What if he goes away for vacation and he didn't have a chance to do that? So he prohibits everyone. What's the reason? Because even though you might say, well, he's not there for Shabbat, so he's not really... He's not a part of the, uh, of the system for Shabbat, but since he might end up coming back in the middle of Shabbat to his house, you don't know, maybe he went over Friday night somewhere, but he's walking back Shabbat day, so then he'll ruin the whole thing. So therefore, the fact that he didn't participate in the Eruv, even though right now he's not there, since he might come back, we have to prohibit everyone from carrying in the Chatzir since they didn't make an Eruv Chatzirot with him. But Rabbi Yudah says, no, since he's gone, he's gone. He's out of the picture, out of sight, out of mind. Rabbi Shabbat. Rabbi Yossi says that it depends. If it's a non-Jew, you're right. A non-Jew might show up in the middle of Shabbat. He was gone, he went to the beach, and he came back in the middle of Shabbat. But a Jew who's gone for Shabbat is gone for Shabbat, he's not coming back. You don't have to worry. They don't count that. That's a whole other thing, but they wouldn't count that. But the, um, uh, there's a whole question about if a, per, if a Jew who isn't a Shomer Mitzvot counts is a concern of Eruv Echatzerot, because it has to be Mishem Modeb Eruv. It has to be somebody who believes in it. 
And if they're not observant, then they might not believe in the concept. Yeah. Even if he went um, and left his house and he went to stay with his daughter who lived in the same city, he doesn't prohibit the people in the Chatzir because once he went for Shabbat, he went for Shabbat. Meaning we're not concerned that he's going to come back. According to Rabbi Shimon. And again, you have Rabbi Yehuda saying that the, uh, that the, uh, that uh, seemingly Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda have a machloket because Rabbi Yehuda is saying if, that this rule only applies if he went to another, if he, the guy went to another city because then we don't think he's coming back. But if he's in the same city, we are concerned he's going to come back. And Rabbi Shimon says even if he went to, the, uh, to King's Point from Great Neck, we're not concerned he's going to come back in the middle. Even if, even, even if it's basically the same neighborhood, uh, we're not concerned he's coming back in the middle. He stayed somewhere for Shabbat, he stayed somewhere for Shabbat. And they said, Allah follows Rabbi Shimon. Again, he's in an argument with Rabbi Yehuda. Why are we not following Rabbi Yehuda here? If the halacha really follows Rabbi Yehuda against Rabbi Shimon. What's the difficulty? You're right. When we have an explicit statement that the halacha follows Rabbi Shimon, fine. But when we don't, we rely on the klalim. We have these rules. So it says, Ela meha And here's another example of Mishar Shev. We'll show you where the rules don't hold up. That the question is, we know that there's two ways you can make an Eruvet Chumin. One is you leave bread there, which was the most common way. You leave food in the spot that you want to start your, your new Tchum. You, you put it there. The other is you can go and stand there until Shabbat starts. You make that your new residence for Shabbat and that extends your tchum. So the question is, this idea of going and standing there, is it like v'diavad al-chathila? Rabbi Meir says that was only made for a poor person because a poor person cannot afford um, to put food in the middle of the forest, you know, or in the middle of the street for Eruv et Chumin. So they let him stand there to make his Eruv. But Rabbi Huda says, I'm sorry, Rabbi, um, yeah, Rabbi Huda says, anybody can do it. Anybody can establish the Eruv Tchumin by going to the edge of the Tchum, standing there until Shabbat starts, and that's enough. They only allowed bread. It's the opposite. It's not that they allowed you to stand there to create your Tchum in order to accommodate poor people. It's the opposite. They allowed you to put bread there to accommodate rich people because they don't want to go stand outside in the middle of the street until Shabbat starts. They send a servant out there who puts bread there, and that's enough. That's what they want to do. Right? And one time Rav Chiyah Barashi was teaching Chiyah Barav in front of Rav. In other words, he was his tutor. Right? That whether it's a poor person or a rich person, they can use this mechanism of going and standing at the point where they want the Tchum to begin. Rav said, You should state at the end, So wait a second. Why do I need to know that? I already know Rabbi Yehuda versus Rabbi Meir. We already have a rule. Rabbi Meir versus Rabbi Yehuda. The halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda. So why did he have to emphasize the halacha follows Rabbi Yehuda? Should be obvious. Umay kushia. Again, what's the difficulty? Dilma Rav Maybe Rav doesn't hold by those rules. Just because Rav doesn't hold by those rules doesn't mean that they aren't legitimate rules. Maybe they're legitimate rules. And, the, and, and he did not, he didn't teach, they're legitimately taught by other Chachamim, but he didn't subscribe to them. That doesn't mean that they're not valid. Okay? So, uh, so, what? 
Yeah, just just because that just shows you that Rav didn't hold by those rules. Rashi says, "Umishum de Rav litneu." And just because Rav doesn't agree with them, you're going to say the rules are invalid. That's just Rav's opinion. Just like you know, you can't go by Rav's opinion to say that the rule is not valid. Here's another example. If a woman dies, I'm sorry. If a man dies and leaves his wife um, without children. So either he has to do, uh, the brother of the husband, of the deceased husband, has to either perform yibum or chalitza, but he has to wait three months to make sure she's not pregnant. Similarly with any other woman. Anytime a woman's husband dies, she has to wait three months, whether, uh, even, if, even if she never consummated the marriage, or whether she did or not. Whether she was widowed or divorced. Whether they were just, arusot uh, means kiddushin, Nisuot means chupa. In those days, they did kiddushin with the ring a year ahead of doing the chupa. So they would do kiddushin with the ring, like what we would call an engagement, but actually halachically it counted as marriage, that they were forbidden to be with anybody else, just that they weren't allowed to live together yet. And then they would have chupa, which is about a year later, where they were, would start to live together. So arusot, the assumption is that they're not engaging in relations with one another. So they would, there wouldn't be a pregnancy thing. But since we are making a rule across the board that any woman who gets divorced... Um, or who it becomes a widow has to wait three months. We apply it even in a case where it isn't so practical, like even in a case where the marriage wasn't consummated. Rabbi Yehuda says, "Listen." Why did they lower the rules and they together? They tried to okay, I, I don't think they're assuming that, but uh, okay, but yeah. But Rabbi Yehuda says, Rabbi Yehuda says, the ones who were already married, fully consummated marriage, and then the husband dies or they get divorced, they can receive kiddushin from another man because they're not going to live with him. So they're not going to get pregnant from him. Right? And there won't be any confusion about who the baby is from. And similarly, if the woman was just engaged, so to speak, she had kiddushin. We don't have a term for this in English. You know, it's not really engaged, but... They weren't living together yet. They can even fully marry another person because they, they weren't intimate with their husband. So therefore, they, they didn't have any concern of pregnancy. Except in the area of Yehuda. In that area, in that neighborhood of Yehuda, they allowed the, the uh, engaged couple to be in Yehud together. So there was already a concern. There was always a concern that they might be too comfortable with each other and they might have been intimate with each other during the Kiddushin period. Even though they're not really supposed to. There was more of a concern there that there could be a pregnancy there. And therefore, um, she can't get remarried until after three months pass. Rabbi Yosef says actually all women could get, have kiddushin right after divorce or, or, or death of the husband. Except for the widow because she has avilut. She has to wait for, uh, for the period of mourning to pass. She can't marry while she's... St- what? There's only 30 days on a husband. Right. So that's right. about three months. Um, it's saying, he's saying, meaning right away, mm-hmm. right? Except for the woman who is uh, widowed, that she has to wait for the, uh, she has to wait because of Right. Yeah, right. So the thir- till the shloshim till the is over. Yeah, but, don't, need, not, don't need get, yeah? What? No, they do. They do yeah, of course. Yes. They're, they're married. I'm saying they're 100% married. They just did, they didn't consummate the marriage, but they're considered married. So what did they get out of Time to prepare. Time to prepare. They would, they, they would, they, it was like an engagement. Why do you have an engagement? What's a waste of time? Why do you have another party called an engagement party, waste thousands of dollars, probably more than that in, around these parts? 
you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars on another party for how many parties do you need? Yeah. Right, so, so what's the reason? To have more fun. That's why they had it. I don't know. But they, they had two parties. Yeah, so, and we said like this, Rabbi Elazar, one time Rabbi Elazar didn't make it to the Beit Midrash, he was, uh, he was standing there, and he said, what did I miss today in the Beit Midrash? Right, so he said, you missed that Rabbi Yochanan said that Allah is Rabbi Yossi, that all women can at least be engaged, they can be betrothed, they can have kiddushin, right after the death of their husband or their divorce, except they just can't consummate the marriage, um, except for the woman who is the almana. So the implication is that whoever's arguing with him is, uh, is an individual. That there's some, that there is an individual who is, um, who's arguing with him. And, uh, and, and it says, in, that's true, we learn in the it says, if the woman was uh, run away, that she had to go to her, her husband's house, her father's house, rather. Um, so she wasn't around her husband. The point is that for whatever reason, she was forced to go stay with her parents, right? Or, or she had a fight with her husband. Her husband was too old. They weren't having relations. was sick. Or she was sick. She had all kinds of other problems, right? She was sick, or she was barren, or she was old, or she was too young, or she didn't have the the, the, character, the characteristics of, um, uh, of sexual maturity. Or she didn't have the ability to give birth. Or her husband was in jail. Right? Or she had a miscarriage right after the death of her husband. In other words, all of these cases are cases where there's no way she could have been pregnant from the husband. That's the point. Right? Still have to wait. Rabbi Yossi says, listen, there's no problem here. We know that she's not pregnant from her previous husband because either they weren't together or she wasn't able to or he wasn't able to or whatever. Or she had a miscarriage right after the death of the husband. So we know she wasn't pregnant from him. So she can get, have Kiddushin and get married right away. Right? So wait a second. Lamali, what do we need this for? You already told me that if it's Rabbi Meir versus Rabbi Yossi, the Allah is going to follow Rabbi Yossi. Right? That's what we learned. In fact, we even said before, Rabbi Yossi from his colleagues, even if it was more than one. But we see that it was Rabbi Meir. And we know that the rule is Rabbi Yossi versus Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Yossi wins. So why do you have to tell me Allah Chakir Rabbi Yossi? So it says, We needed to know that Allah in that case was according to Rabbi Yossi because to, it was to exclude what Rav Nachman said in the name of Shmuel. Because Rav Nachman said in the name of Shmuel, even where the halakha generally doesn't follow Rabbi Meir about a lot of things, but when it comes to gzerotav, when it comes to decrees, rabbinic decrees, we do take his opinion into account. And here it's a matter of rabbinic decree. It's what we call lopilug. We say, don't make distinctions. If we're making a rule that a woman has to wait three months after divorce or the death of the husband to remarry, and you start entering into distinctions, well, she wasn't with him. Well, she was this. Well, this. Can-. So then all of a sudden it becomes that you're, you're making it too subjective. You're going to make a judgment. Well, it isn't really possible. And then you uproot the whole concept. So the rabbis make a blanket rule, you have to wait three months. And we might think that Rabbi Meir, when it comes to Gzerot like that, maybe we do take his opinion into account. And that's why they're coming to say, no, we don't take his opinion into account. Okay. Now, Ela Meha, here's another. So, so again and again, we find that even though it's reiterated that the Allah follows a certain rabbi, that doesn't prove that it wouldn't follow that rabbi in every other case. 
And even though the halakha fa- says it follows a certain rabbi, doesn't mean that that applies to all cases. It could just be in that exceptional case that we follow that rabbi, and in other cases we don't. So none of this is proving, Rav Meshach Shia, that the rules are invalid. Maybe from the following right, it says you can go to the Yarid. The Yarid was like a uh, was like a, a, a bazaar, like uh, when they would have like uh, a shuk type of day that they, you would go to uh, to purchase things like a show, like a you know, but of, of different wares, huh? Yeah, so so. So, so they would say, you, you go and you, you get, the, you could buy animals, servants of different kinds, houses, fields, uh, vi- uh, vineyards, and you can write and you can have it validated in their courts. Because that's the only way you can protect your, um, your, your, you know, your, your investment, your acquisition, because otherwise he's not going to trust you. You have to have some kind of proof. Because the person that you're dealing with might come back and say, no, I didn't sell it to him. He doesn't have proof. So you're allowed to use their courts. That's the point. Even though in general we try to use a Jewish court. Okay? And not only that, because you're, it's like you're saving your possessions from them. Meaning because they will t- try to take advantage and say, no, I never sold it to him. I don't know what you're talking about. Which they would do all the time back then. Especially anti-Semitic uh, Gentiles would take the money and then say, no, there was never such a thing. And it's not his. So they, uh, so it says you, you can't, um, you can use their courts. Okay? And he can even travel to Chutzlaretz. Even if he's a Kohen, he can travel. Now, normally you couldn't travel. A Kohen was not allowed to travel to Chutzlaretz because it's considered to be the whole place is Tamei uh, Met. It's Xerat Rabbanan that we treat the whole place of Chutzlaretz like Tumat Met. There's a whole question about why Kohenim are allowed to live in Chutzlaretz today. There's a discussion of that. But anyway, it says he can go there in order to, uh, to have a judgment and to make an appeal uh, in their courts. In order to save his property, it says not only that the coin can even go to a cemetery to do it. So it says What do you mean? That's a deoraita. How could he do that? Meaning in those areas which are rabbinically prohibited, like the places that formerly had graves and were trampled on over a long time. Like we said, you're allowed to blow air in front of you and walk in the in the in the beta pras because it's only rabbinic because we don't really know if there's any remnants of bones or things like that in that area. He's allowed to do that. But what's the point? That now we're still not done to the, to, to the point that's relevant here. He can, get, he can put himself in a situation of rabbinic tum'ah also to get married and to learn Torah. No, so he could go to Chutz to learn Torah even. I'm Rabbi Yehuda, or to find a wife. I'm Rabbi Yehuda, when is this true? But if the person is able to, if the Kohen is able to find a place to learn in Eretz Israel, why does he have to go to Chutz and become Tamei? So it says, Rabbi Yossi Omer, Rabbi Yossi says, no, it's not a good point. Even if he can find a yeshiva in, in Eretz Israel, he still could go to Chutz Why? Because a person cannot always learn from every teacher. Right? Rashi says, now, you know, a person can't learn from every teacher. There are some teachers that are, have organized teaching and they teach in a, it with brevity and clarity and there are others that are not so clear. So just because there's a yeshiva doesn't mean it's not all yeshivot are created equal, not all rabbis are created equal and also there's a subjective element I think too. Sometimes a, te- a, a student like clicks with a certain teacher and it doesn't click with another teacher and you won't be able to learn from that. Yeah. But, that's true. That's, that's also true. You, but there he doesn't argue with him because that's really very particular. Right? 
There was a situation with Yosef Akoyin. And Motor, he went outside of Israel in order to learn Torah. And Rabbi Yochanan said, But you don't have to tell me that. Because we already learned that whenever you have a machloket between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi, so why do you have to tell me that? here? So doesn't that prove that the rules are not really true? Because you had to decide on a case-by-case basis. You still needed it. Even with the rules, you still needed it. Maybe the rule that you told me, the rule that we always follow, Rabbi Yossi, is only in Mishnayot, but in a Brayta, maybe, a Brayta is not as authoritative. So maybe those rules weren't meant to apply to Braytot as well. Therefore, it comes to tell you that even in Braytot, the Halakha follows Rabbi Yossi. But Elahachi Kamar. So therefore we see from this that Rav Mesharshia's proofs are not so solid. Because in every case we can come up with a reason why we had to mention the Halacha followed a certain rabbi. Or the reason we said it didn't follow a certain rabbi. Or why we had to reiterate the point. It doesn't prove that the rules are not valid. Rather, so what do we say? Elahachi Kamar. This is what Rav Mesharshia actually meant. What Rav Mesharshia said was not that the rules are bupkis, that they're meaningless. Right? He didn't mean that they're nonsense. He say meant that they are not divreya kol ninhu. They don't, they don't agreed upon by everyone. Taharav litle haneklale. Cause as we saw, Rav didn't hold by those rules. He thought that in every case you had to make an independent decision whom the halacha should follow. And so therefore, it's not divreya kol. It's not, uh, accepted by everybody. That was what Rav was saying. He wasn't saying the rules are totally invalid. They are rules that were used. And had validity, but there were also some who disagreed with them. So it doesn't mean to say that they're illegitimate. Just because you have a different opinion, you don't delegitimize the other side, right? So it's another, but he just wanted to say that they're not absolutely accepted by everyone. Uh, the, the possessions of a non-Jew do not acquire a Shabbat residence. Okay, now what that would mean is that if you want to, if you want to give you something, let's say on Yom Tov or in a place where you're allowed to carry, Okay, you don't have to go by his tichum. Let's say he, he had something uh, that he brought with him. Uh, you wouldn't be able to travel all the way to the place where he brought it because it's outside the tichum and then he decides to give it to you. He didn't bring it for you because if he brought it for you, that would be a different issue, right? But he, he was going to give it to you, okay? Or he's going to leave it there. So do you have to say, well, now I can't move it more than four amot because this item was with the non-Jew when, when Yom Tov or Shabbat started and it has a, a tichum and that tichum is in wherever, wherever the non-Jew came from. And now it's here and I can't move it because it's outside of its tchum. We say, no, it doesn't have a tchum because the, the non-Jew doesn't have a concept of Shabbat. So his objects don't acquire a Shabbat residence because the non-Jew doesn't have a concept of Shabbat. So Leman, who is this following? If it's according to the rabbis, that's obvious because we already said that even ownerless objects do not become established in a place on Shabbat. Meaning if you find some ownerless item, hefker, in the middle of nowhere, you don't say, well, like let's say for example, you made an Eruvet Chumin. So you were able to go 4,000 Amot out of your city because you're allowed to go extra 2,000 Amot a certain direction. And you found an item there that was abandoned. It's a knapsack, I don't know, something out there. And you want to take it. It's, a, it's hefker, you want to take it. So now you might say, well, if you say hefzeh hefker konin shvita. That means that this item can only move 2,000 amot from its current location because it started Shabbat in a specific place. And you, because you had an Erovet Chumin, are already 3,000 amot out of your city, let's say. So you wouldn't be able to bring it back to your city because that object didn't make an Erovet Chumin. It was an ownerless. But if you... S- object anyway. it's, it's, there's no... Erovet, right? You can't 
I'm saying it's Yom Tov. I'm imagining it's Yom Tov to make it easier for you. Right? Or maybe he could put it on his back. I don't know. Maybe it's a shirt. He's going to wear it. I don't know. We're, like the Gemara would do, we make up a case that it works and we do. So say it's Yom Tov. Right? Or it's enclosed or whatever. Right? Now, so it says, so, uh, so certainly, if something which is ownerless doesn't establish a, a tchum, certainly something that belongs to a non-Jew won't, because what connection does a non-Jew have to Shabbat that he's gonna that his objects get a tchum Shabbat? Why should his objects get a tchum Shabbat? Right? That, that rather we must be following Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri, and we learn from this. That when did Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri? We learned from this when Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri said that un, that objects without an owner establish a Shabbat location. That's only when it has no owner. But if it had an owner that was non-Jewish, it won't. So actually, a an ownerless object is more strict than an object owned by a non-Jew because an ownerless object has its own independent identity. And wherever it is, it established its Shabbat residence and you can't violate it. But a non-Jew's object, he doesn't have a concept of Shabbat. So he doesn't have, so he, it's, his object will be more unlimited than the Chepzei Hefker that you find. Okay? Now, there is an objection to this. Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer hasho el klim min anuchri biyom tov. It says, if you borrow something from a non-Jew on yom tov, v'chena mash'il lo anuchri klim min erev yom tov, v'chsiyo lo biyom tov. Or you lent something out to a non-Jew on erev yom tov and he returned it to you on yom tov. V'akilim v'altarot shavtu v'toch atchum. Similarly, vessels and other storage uh, items that were within the tchum. Yesh len alpayim amal koroach. They have 2,000 amot every direction. Okay, and similarly, a non-Jew who brought fruit from outside Tchum, he can't move them from their place. In other words, it's saying that objects have a Tchum, right? Objects have a Tchum that, they, that even you lend something to the non-Jew, the non-Jew lends something to you, it acquires a 2,000 Amat Tchum, and even if the non-Jew brought something from outside the Tchum, and it comes... Now you can't move it for Amot because it had its chum from before Yom Tov, wherever it was, and he brought it from there, and now it's in your possession, and you can't move it because it's outside its chum. So that shows you. So if you're going to tell me that Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri says that the object of a non-Jew establish a Shabbat location, so Hamani Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri will say that this is Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri because the non-Jew that brought you something on Yom Tov came from outside the Tchum. He had the object before Yom Tov, it was his, right? And yet it acquired a Shabbat residence. That would mean that Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri holds that whether you're talking about ownerless objects, whether you're talking about, whether you're talking about things that are ownerless or things owned by a non-Jew, they do have a makum for Shabbat. They have a place for Shabbat, right? But if you're going to say that no, Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri would say that true that ownerless items have a limit on where they can be tr- carried on, on Yom Tov or Shabbat. But things owned by Yanan Jew do not. So Hamani, lo Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri, velo Rabbanan. So then you're going to come to the difficult conclusion that this can't follow either Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri or the rabbis. Because neither of them would say Yanan Jew's items have a Tchum Shabbat. So, and yet this Brita is clearly saying that the non-Jews items have a Tchum Shabbat and since he brought them from outside the Tchum, they're not going to be able to be moved. Well, we'll we'll see. We'll see what Gemara says. We're going to conclude like this, that really Rabbi Yochanan ben Uri will say that just like ownerless objects have a tchum, objects that belong to a non-Jew also have a tchum. 
And when Shmuel said above that that non-Jewish objects do not have a, 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 a place of rest, he was talking according to the rabbis. Now you objected to that and said that for the rabbis that should be obvious. Right? Because if ownerless objects, according to the rabbis, don't establish a, a location for Shabbat, why should objects that are owned by non-Jews have a, a location for Shabbat? They don't have any connection to Shabbat. You ask an average non-Jew about Shabbat, they don't know what you're talking about. Right? So, mahu, so, no, still Shmuel had to say it. Because, balim atu balim exactly what you said, kamashmalan. In other words, you might have thought that they would make a gzera, that if we allow, if we didn't impose on the objects of the non-Jew a tchum Shabbat, you might get confused with the object of a Jew and not realize that his objects follow his tchum. So meaning if a person comes to you from, they made an erovet chumin um, that overlaps with yours, but they give you something, you can't go beyond the tchum of that object that they established before Shabbat or before Yom Tov. They established the tchum of their object. So if we didn't apply that to non-Jews, maybe you would think people will get confused. So therefore... Um, so therefore, uh, uh, right, Kavash Malan, that we don't make such a gzera. Okay? So, uh, where was I? Oh, Virav Chia Baravin, Am Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Baravin said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, that the objects of a non Jew do in fact acquire a Shabbat location. Because of exactly what we just said. We have to make a gzera that maybe if we, if we don't impose such a limitation on the object of non-Jews, <coughs> then, we will, then we'll get it confused with the object of Jews. That's the name of a place. So certain rams that were brought by non-Jews to this place called Mavrechata, uh, on Yom Tov. Sharalu Ravalev Ne Machuza, Ravala, the people of Machuzali Mizban Minayu to buy from them on Yom Tov. Now we learned that you can buy on credit on Yom Tov. You can't really buy, you can take it and you can pay afterwards or whatever. Right? You allow them, even though they came from outside Tchum. Amale Ravina Rava. Maida Teh, Ravina Sadrava, how could you allow this? Am Ravi Udam or Shmuel. Chatseno Hui in Kunin Shvita. Didn't you say. Let's, let's do halacha lemasa later, but let, let, let's just see what they're saying here. Now, Ravina said, Rabbi, my datech, what is your opinion that Rabbi Udasan Shmuel Chavtenu Chi in Konin Shvita? So, therefore, the things that the non Jews own from before Yom Tov, they don't have any limit on their, on their travel, right? Because, uh, because he said that they don't acquire a space. But when it's Shmuel versus Rabbi Yochanan, we usually go with Rabbi Yochanan. And Rabbi Yochanan said, Ram Rabbi Chia Baravina, Rabbi Yochanan, Chavtei Nochi Konin Shvita, Gzera Baalim Dinochi Atu Baalim Diyisrael. That we have a Gzera. That maybe if we get, we'll get confused. That if we don't impose a Tchum on objects that, are, uh, uh, that belong to the non-Jew before Shabbat or Yom Tov, we also won't impose it on the objects that belong to a Jew. And so therefore, when these people come with these rams that came from outside the Tchum, we should impose a Tchum on it and not allow the people of Mechuzat to take them. So it says, no, had, so as a result of that, Hadar Amaravarava seemingly retracted and he said, The reason is not because these objects don't have a tchum. Even if we're saying rabbinically speaking, we apply a tchum to these objects. We say that since these non-Jews came, from outside, uh, you know, from a certain distance away, those objects are limited by the tchum, but the entire, the, their, their tchum reached the city. 
It reached the city. And the entire city is considered like Dalit Amot. It's considered like four Amot. So even though it's true that something that left its Tchum, you can't move it more than Dalit Amot, you can't move it more than four Amot. In this case, they said the whole city, we're going to treat it as if it is four Amot. Like the case of a person, we learned earlier, case of a person who is removed against his will to another city or that they put him in a, uh, an enclosure or something like that outside of his tchum and he didn't have control over it, we said that the, the rabbis were lenient and said that he's allowed to move around in that entire enclosed area because he was taken from outside the tchum. So too, these items are taken outside the tchum by the non-Jew. The items are, you know, they're rams, whatever the animals are, you know, it's against their will. They're not, you know. And so therefore, when they come into the city area of Mavrichata, they're allowed to consider it as um, as the whole place is Dalit Amot and they can move it around and that's the reason why. It's not because we're not, it's not because we're saying that those items don't have a tchum. We're just saying that since they left the tchum and came into the city, the whole city is considered like four Amot and they can move those items freely throughout that city. Okay? Now that's,